This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven to you. Robbery homicides take me. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. Trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me today over Skype is a man who is sort of a culture writer for the Portland Mercury, um, is a producer of another awesome podcast that I strongly recommend called 80s All Over with Scott Weinberg and Drew McWeeny. Um, But the main reason I wanted to get him on this is because he's one of the greatest Star Wars aficionados that is online, and actually not one of the ones that is sort of sociopathic levels of like craziness that uh, that makes you never want to be a Star Wars fan, even though you are one. Um, he's just one of my absolute favorite people online. His name is Bobby Roberts. Bobby, thank you so much for being a part of One Hit Minute. <laughs> that is one of the best podcast intros I've ever <laughs> Thank you. For, like, I, I, I feel like I sort of grew out of the, the status you were talking about. Like, if this podcast had happened about 15 years ago, <laughs> I would have been that dude. I probably would not have been on this podcast. <laughs> but uh, I, I appreciate that, man. Thank you very much for, uh, for having me on. This is really cool. I, I love Heat. Um, I don't know if it's my favorite Michael Mann movie, but yeah, it's one it, of most. It's, it's up there. It's one of the most beautiful uh, of his films, uh, not just visually, but uh, thematically. And it's probably the one that's the most fun to unpack. Um, It seems like sort of the thesis of man. Uh, Like you can point to that movie and every director has that movie, whether they mean to be making it that way or not. But every director has that one movie where you can point to it and say basically everything that this person has in their toolbox was used and used well in this one film wow um i think heat is the uh is the thesis of michael mann it's so close and 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 what's a fun game and you've taken us immediately down a rabbit hole so i appreciate it is that you you think of those great directors and you're like oh what is the thesis film so you just even just even very iconic or quirky directors like an anderson what's a wes anderson what's his What's his piece de resistance? And it's like, is it Grand Budapest? Maybe. Um, you know, Tarantino, is it Pulp Fiction? Or is it Inglorious Bastards? Or is it Django? You know, but yeah, I, I totally agree. And one of the reasons, guys, I wanted to talk to Bobby as well is because there are so many uh, absolutely batshit arguments that go on the internet with characterizations and, um, and people just completely misinterpreting character. And I think we're in a time for a positive sense that people are more you know, socio-politically aware of the significance of character and a characterization and, and things like that. But the, especially in massively popular pop culture movies, some people just completely go wrong. So I love often when people are talking crazy to go back and just check out what Bobby says and just go, okay, cool. There are other people who are normal on the internet. It's not just what's <laughs> happening in my Twitter feed. So really appreciate that you're here for the 45th minute of Heat, the what we're lovingly called before we kicked off officially recording the podcast, the cleanup, go home uh, Mm. moment, uh, an amazing encounter, a collision between Neil McCauley and Charlene Chahalis, played by Robert De Niro and Ashley Judd. So before we dive in and talk 
about this minute and talk about man and, and, and really rip in. Let's have a listen to the minute. Bobby and I are going to watch it together and then we're going to come back and talk about it with you guys. You guys can have a listen. Then I will finance setting you up myself on my own, any way you want. Dominic will go with you and my word counts. But right now, you will give him the chance. Clean up, go home. Clean up, go home. There we go, sir. We've gone from that confrontation to Vincent Hanna at a Korean, a Koreatown strip mall, um, heading into a night, uh, heading into a nightclub, and some awesome sort of uh, Elliot Goldenthal synth. Let's talk about yeah. it. Um, let's talk about the uh, the drive-in because uh, that probably has the least, uh, I don't know, uh, sort of substance to it. Although even even the fact that it's just Vincent driving to a Korean restaurant. Um, it's still very stylishly done uh, to the point where it's almost distracting, especially when you realize what the scene that follows is going to be. Yes. Like, man shoots it like there's going to be a bust. Like, <laughs> yes. like an action sequence uh, on par with, like, that, that middle episode of True Detective. You know that one <laughs> Yes, the one. Oh, he what a one like He shoots it like we're about to hit that one in the uh, in the Korean food joint. Uh, and all he does is sort of walk in and sit down and then just give a, 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 a huge raft of shit. <laughs> 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 but, uh, but I love just the sort of the energy and it's that those sorts of scenes propel heat forward. Heat is a very long movie. Heat is very languidly paced. Um, and it's those sorts of scenes that make it feel like it's hurtling along at a pace much faster than it's actually traveling. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what I like about that part. The part before it, though, where uh, Neil McCauley and uh, Charlene Chehalis uh, are uh, are sort of facing off against each other. Um, that, I think, is actually one of the key moments uh, in the film. And it's definitely one of the uh, more widely recognized uh, fun moments in, in uh, De Niro's performance uh, People really like that bit. They, I mean, everyone has their own favorite bit in in Heat, and that's why this podcast is genius because you <laughs> thank you. So many people latching on to those favorite moments and making everyone else feel like, oh yeah, well that's also my favorite moment too. It's all about the little things in film, especially when you're revisiting a film for the second or third time. It's not so much you know the the huge tidal wave of emotion and theme that's smacking into your chest. Um, I mean, that's still there. That still washes over you, especially at the ending of this film with the synths just sort of gliding over every last raw nerve um, at the top of your skin. Uh, it's it's sort of like you, you're just picking out all these really cool moments that you maybe missed before or that you didn't miss before, but you like digging into because there's so much there to play with. Like, you know, an, an eye darting to, to this side or, you know, someone gulping just that little 
that little nudge of the Adam's apple as the actor is very, very clearly communicating to you um, that things have gone imperceptibly, but oh, so wrong. Um, those and, sorts of moments and, are all over heat. They're just scattered everywhere all over heat. And uh, clean up, go home is definitely one of those moments. And Ashley Judd, you, you're so right. Is uh, This is Neil McCauley who's been so cool and collected, even in the most hyper-aggressive you know, moments in the film. From Wayne Grove's mistake at the beginning, you know, he only slightly lost his temper with Wayne Grove before the escape and had to realize that that was not the time to be emotional. Um, and, and so you've seen him in really hyper situations. And when he's truly losing his temper and actually has to, like, say, shut up, is just in the preceding seconds before this minute. And, you know, he's a powerhouse and everyone around him falls in line. And this is what I adore about the minute that we're talking about is you really see the the strength that Ashley Judd can conjure in this character. Even though she's, you know, she's begrudgingly agreeing to whatever they're going through, uh, I just adore the... The, he's the active and he's exactly right. You're right about these gestures. His entire, you know, uh, uh, command of all of his different facial gestures and his body and his posture here is so great. And what's even more powerful is that Ashley Judd is so rigid and so still and so strong, it, like just <laughs> being crushed under the wave of all these emotions that are just being spat at her. It's such an amazing sort of end of a scene. Yeah, like um, the the minute before this features, speaking of one of those little actorly moments, and, and one that De Niro has gone to over his career, but which is always sort of affecting because I've, it's so relatable. Um, he's he's yelling at her, like you said, um, and he he gets so close to calling her a fucking something. Yes, like, he says you. you, and you can see him <laughs> chewing on the first syllable of that word, and it gets stuck to his lower lip, and he's trying to basically bite it off, and he succeeds. And I, it's that moment, it's that specific moment where he realizes he's got this. It's like he doesn't have to actually let it fly. He stops himself from letting it fly because he's afraid it's going to go out of control. But once he swallows it back down and she sort of loses a little bit control as well, like her voice starts to rise, like he realizes he's got this. He's essentially going to bully her into going against her best interest for like the 80th or 90th time in her <laughs> Chris's relationship. Before relationship. I let you go on, do you think this is, this is a great question that came up in the previous minute, which I have to ask you now. Is this the first time this has happened? Or has this happened before with it's these abs- two? It's absolutely happened before. Yeah. And that's part, of the, that's part of the overriding tragedy of that whole storyline with, with Chris and Charlene is that Charlene's infidelities is, is partially why Hannah's crew catches on to them and everything goes south at the end of the movie. So it's, it's, but they wouldn't be infidelities if Chris had let Charlene go long before this movie ever started, like it's very obviously, I'm pretty sure it's straight up said to us that this has been a pattern. Like he's not good for her. No, she wants to go. She's absolutely always wanted to go. He will not let her do it. And because he will not let her do it, she's stuck in these situations over and over and over again. It's in his best interest to let her go, too, but he won't do it because he loves her so much. And sort of the – it's a thing that happens with Michael Mann movies fairly often. 
Um, and, and Roger Ebert actually touched on it in his review uh, of Heat, but also in other reviews of, of Michael Mann films because he's a very observational guy and very insightful guy. It's part of the reason you, everyone's... You, pre- you preach, into the, preach into the choir on Roger Ebert yeah, yeah. as far as being, an art- <laughs> being able to just synthesize thoughts about what filmmakers do. Yeah, I'm, I'm all in. And and he put his thumb very strongly on it when he said that um, a lot of Michael Mann movies, and this movie in particular, um, feature women who basically either want to tame the man at the center or are asking the man to give up on their passions and come back home and yeah. settle down. Yes. Like that is almost always the female role in a Michael Mann film because Michael Mann films are – more than anything, concerned with the idea, not even so much of excellence, but of hyper-competency. You are good at your job, your passion is your job, and all you really care about doing is the job as correctly as it can be done. And if anything gets in the way of that, it it has to know before it enters into that, that field of view, that very tightly focused field of view, that it's probably going to get ruined. You you <laughs> yes. get away in any in any way, shape, or form as I try to achieve the goal that has become my entire life's focus. Um, you are going to get ruined somehow, and this film absolutely makes that text. It's sometimes subtext in other Michael Mann films, and it's sometimes uh, a subplot. But this film is flat out about that obsession and and men's men tying up their sense of self worth in how good they do their job. Yes. And and what's happening here in in the clean up go home scene is not sort of paternal instinct kicking in because I know a lot of people like to describe uh De Niro's character as paternalistic, like he's the dad of this crew. He's the guy trying to make sure that his crew is taken care of because the whole honor among, amongst thieves thing that Michael Mann very obvious. <laughs> that's another one of his big themes. Yes. Honor among thieves it's not even that you're good at what you do it's that you follow the code behind what it is you've chosen and it's also honor among players so Mm -hmm. it's it's like the cops and the the cops and the crooks as long as they're honorable and as long as they're doing their job there is a level of admiration like vincent like you said some things are subtext in other films and and the text here is these guys this crew is good this crew (laughs) is good you know they're they're playing by the rules so to speak that they should be yeah and and it's not just audience members who looked at uh, Macaulay's sort of relationship with everyone else in his crew in, in, in Charlene by, uh, you know, by connection uh, as paternalistic. Uh, there was an interview with the, the L.A. Weekly that uh, that Michael Mann gave. And the, the guy who was conducting the interview um, specifically brought up the line clean up, go home as as one of their favorite lines. Um, and Mann describes it as actually here. Oh, I, I just brought it up. Here's the quote. It might be my favorite part of his performance. There's something in that moment. He is 200% Neil McCauley. He is the boss of that crew. He's taking responsibility. He's being protective. Clean up, go home. I'll keep the lie. I'll keep the marital betrayal that I've just discovered, which is potentially dangerous to our security. Now, that sort of gives you an insight into how Anne is viewing the scene. But it also tells you that man at no point stepped outside of Macaulay, no. stepped outside of that uh, of that mindset to consider her role or her characterization beyond that point. She is there pretty much to set up the plot point that is going to eventually bring the rest of the crew down. And so 
because she's wanted to leave for God knows how long and hasn't been allowed. She's she's starting to have, you know, affairs. And because she's having an affair to sort of get the fulfillment that she needs to have outside of Chris, um, she's she's sort of screwed it up for the crew and she's going to end up being punished. The movie punishes her for trying to find a way towards happiness that neither Neil nor Chris is going to let her have. And And, and the movie plays that as completely correct. That's the correct read. And also what's so funny about it is because we're, you know, even branching, not even for the rest of the consequences of the entire film, but just a few Mm -hmm. minutes later, you've got the sort of, Neil's crew family dinner that happens. Mm. And in that moment, when he's scanning across his crew and he's looking at all these happy, smiling faces and he's thinking about potentially, you know, contacting Edie, which he does, it's in that moment that it's a farce. Like it's orchest it's 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 orchestrated. Like he looks across to Chris and and Charlene, and Chris is none the wiser that Charlene's having another indiscretion because Neil is keeping up appearances. You know, we don't know what he's, he's clearly helped Michael with a lovely jewel for his wife, Elaine, you know, don't ask him where he got it. And we've got Treo there, you know, in a, in a hot and heavy new relationship. And what I, what I sort of love about that contrast is that it's sort of, he's keeping the, keeping it copacetic because he knows that the guys in his crew can't execute the discipline that he lives his life to because he's not Mm. normal. He's not a normal person. And so even though he does, this is the way, the only way is this like hyper control of everything. If there is a risk, it's just bringing them back to center. These guys need this little outlet in their life of family that I don't quite understand. But, you know, you need to get back on track and you need to go and fulfill your role in the crew. Mm. Your role in the crew is Chris's wife. That that can't, you can't not play that role. Yeah, and I think... I think you you hit upon uh, this sort of disconnect there that still makes him uh, an amazing character to sort of look at, maybe not so much identify with. Michael Mann has a problem with presenting you these characters in a way that, you know, audiences, particularly male audiences, don't want to identify with. Like you can you can put up almost every single protagonist or antagonist in a Michael Mann film and they are written in a way so that young male audiences are like that's cool (laughs) Um, what what Neil McCauley is doing isn't really parental I think he lies to himself about it being parental and caring but it's much more what you said it's controlling what what is of key importance to Neil McCauley is the idea that he is in control and if a situation is out of control, he then controls it by abandoning it. Yes. So long as his power is the only power and it, it it's exertion like subsumes everything else within a five mile radius of it, then he feels centered. Then he feels correct. And that, and Charlene is a problem to solve. Charlene is not a person to listen to Charlene. No. If, if he, if she was a person to listen to, Charlene probably would have been X'd out of this whole situation a year back because everyone knows Chris is a drunk fuck up, right? <laughs> yes. But, but because it's a matter of control and Neil is the one that has to be in control and Neil feels better about himself, the more moving parts are under his control and everything works flawlessly the way, the way Neil has it planned. That that's partially what brings him down too. 
he he can't step out of the mindset of him being in control. And when he does finally start to step out of it with Edie, um, that's partially what brings him down. When he steps out of it so far as Wayne Grove goes, like he realizes he's going to break his own rule. That's partially what brings him down because he's not used to looking at things from perspectives. I mean, he 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 sort of guesses what other people are going to do. And he has a general idea of what will happen if you take – you know, he, he looks at people as props, essentially. And yes. you take this prop and you set it in this position and you push this thing at that prop. That prop is either going to fall over, run out of the way or try and, and, and fight back. Um, and that's about the depth of his understanding. Um, and that's and, seemed- and, and he pressure tests that. Just to jump yeah. off what you said there, but he pressure tests it with Chris in that amazing, you know, scene that this, you know, the, the definitive, you know, the titular scene of the movie where he's sitting there talking about the heat coming around the corner, and he's like, you know, you know, with family, you know, and are you sure Charlene's the one? Like, are you sure this is going to work? And he sort of has this little moment with Chris. Are you sure this is going to work? And when Chris says, "For me, the sun rises and sets with a man." He's like, all right. And so in that moment, the inventory of his brain says, well, now I need to fix this because I've already yeah. got a suspicion. As soon as he's, as soon as Chris is oblivious and clearly she's his blind spot, I think she's seeing someone on the side. I think that that's what's causing some of the friction. And I love what you said before. Have they had this conversation before? Yes, definitely. It makes so much more sense in that moment of the film if you sort of reflect on it and you look at it that way because – He's going, okay, well, if Chris still doesn't believe that there's something on the side, she's clearly got something on the side because I know she's done it before. And now I'm going to go and investigate and discover that, yes, they are actually doing something on the side. Yeah, and it also uh, allows him leverage over Chris um, because he knows – like if you have watched that relationship proceed along its bumpy, drunken, messed up path (laughs) up until that point, and you know he's seen it because he's some of the only people he's actually close with. And you hear those words come out of Val Kilmer's mouth, you realize this guy is stuck. Mm. Um, and that is absolutely, like you said, a blind spot. So you have to manage for that. You have to control for that. Yes. Um, and and again, like if you look at it from Charlene's perspective, if she's just allowed to go, if Chris allows her to go, if Chris's concept of love isn't "I love you, so you have to stay with me," none of this is a problem. No. She's not going. Like, she's not going to cause them issues. She actually, yeah. and you can tell in the early parts of this exchange that we've just missed, which is like he's a legitimate businessman. That's her way to defuse Neil. He's a legitimate businessman. He's a legitimate businessman, and she's like she says it so quickly that it's mm-hmm. like this isn't a guy who's a crook who's using me for leverage in, to tap into you guys. This is a guy who's unawares, and it's only you know by bad luck on Charlene's part, you know, her, her law of attraction, attracting a guy who probably isn't exactly a legitimate person to begin with. That's not her type, clearly. Um, yeah, she attracts Alan Marciano, who, you know, by Hank, played by Hank Azaria, who is this guy who's got some dodgy connections in his past. So, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think it's a, it's really, really interesting in that point. If, like, she's trying to diffuse it. No, he's legitimate. This can't mm-hmm. come back at you. I'm smart enough and, and- to know that, Neil. And another aspect um, that feeds into Michael Mann's uh, repetitive themes across his filmography um, are are his ideas of romance and how that romance gets rewarded. Um, Basically, the only person in the film uh, who gets anything close to a happy ending, and it's not really a happy ending, uh, is Chris. Like, he's shot up, but he gets to escape. Yeah. He He doesn't get to see Charlene anymore, so that's sad for him. 
but his love for her is what drove him to the point in the story where he gets to actually survive it where nobody else really does. I'm Vincent does obviously, but I mean like nobody else in his crew gets to survive that moment. And it's the reward for his undying love. The sun rises and sets. He, he honestly believes that down in his heart. And so he gets the reward for it, but that's, bullshit because what, <laughs> what he feels for charlene isn't love it's possession he yes. owns her and when when macaulay sees that his concept of ownership isn't really jibing with reality macaulay comes in and then macaulay owns her so that chris can feel like he sh- like he still owns her because and macaulay it- owns the whole crew that's exactly should be clear like, he owns the whole crew and chris and this, is, is just volatile and this extends not and this extends so far out of the movie that if you try to look up the clean up go home scene on YouTube, one of the first uh, hits that comes back is not clean up go home or heat uh, Macaulay and Charlene. It's Robert De Niro owns Ashley Judd. <laughs> oh, God. That's the title of the video, and you know that it's meant because it's like okay, yes. Robert De Niro is putting Ashley Judd in her place in the scene in the film, yeah. but it also is a very succinct sum up of how those character interactions, that specific triangle of characterization, is is described. That's exactly what it is. Like Chris thinks he owns Charlene, doesn't? Yeah. Neil owns Chris absolutely. In order to keep Chris owned, Neil now has to own Charlene. Yeah. And not just not just like philosophically, he basically offers to purchase her. Yes. I I will keep you financially solvent. You can trust my word. I will buy you. Yes. That's essentially what he's saying. And she rolls with that because at this point being bought is the only way her character can understand you know affection being shown to her and and going like, out on those terms so like you said it's the back it's the contingency uh yeah. which is in that moment if i if, if for him to maintain control of chris he's like look she's gonna leave i'll set her up you know mm-hmm. he's already thought about the potential of that conversation happening he's like oh, yeah. i'll set her up and what i what's so funny is that i love you know even even the title like neil uh robert Niro owns ashley judd what what I love is that anyone could look at that and think that he was doing like the right thing because it's it's maybe it's just because I've seen the film so many times but it's she's railing to escape as you said she's railing to escape this whole time so this is like the you know this is the heat equivalent of just when I thought I was out he pulled me back in because she's back <laughs> in she's back in after this like there's no yeah. way like she's she's if he caught her and he was any other person or she, if it was Chris she knows that Chris would fall off the handle and he'd be uncontrollable. He'd probably be inconsolable and go off and gamble mm-hmm. himself or take drugs or be a complete fuck-up, as we've talked about before. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's Neil, so just when I thought I was out, he said he'd finance <laughs> me and I have to take his word. <laughs> well, and what I also like is that while we're diving into the the weird ways that this sort of reveals maybe some of Michael Mann's blind spots and definitely the blind spots in the characters that he's writing, it also still feeds back in to the uh, to the more plotty aspects of the screenplay and Neil Macaulay's ultimate downfall, which is absolutely intended by Mann and by De Niro in the way that everyone's choosing to portray this character and and tell this story, is that he is he is breaking his own rules. Macaulay's defeat at the end of this film is 100% bought by Macaulay. It's not so much that Hannah yeah. wins. It's that Macaulay 
keeps incrementally, once we meet him at the beginning of the film, stepping out of line. He is not adhering to his own code. And that is the worst thing you can do in a Michael Mann film yes. is any variation from the code that you are supposed to be rigidly adhering to is uh, you are sprinting towards your own death and you deserve it. That's essentially what's being said. Most <laughs> yes. all of these. And, and that's, that's what happens with uh, Macaulay. Like I, that's it. He, the way he handles Charlene is part of a, a chain of screw ups that leads to him in Pacino's lap listening <laughs> listening to synth music listening to uh, listening to some moby synth but yeah, yeah you're, you're 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 right it's and what i love though and this is what's so cool about um sort of the tragic elements of the ending but it's vincent's awareness that if they haven't caught him in a 48 hours he's gone like vincent's mm-hmm. you know in the in in the scene uh, where he he finds young Natalie Portman's character mm-hmm. on a suicide attempt in that moment. Had she not been there, like Vincent's going into that hotel room for a month and not coming out. Like he's, he's fought the good fight, but if the guy adheres to the code and he's as good as he says he is, especially after taking his measure face to face, he's gone. And you're exactly right. It's that the fact that he's denied, denying himself that code and denying, 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 there's, mm-hmm. it's it's only this miracle that that it even comes up, and even the the guys who are protecting Wangro, you know, they feel like a oh, this is an overcomplication. This is not. Mm-hmm. This is he's gone. There's no way he's going to come back for Wangro. This is the last stitch effort, and yeah. he's there. And so yeah. that that I think that's so wonderful as well, is because you you know sometimes there's a little bit more triumph. Um, with a with a protagonist and an antagonist colliding like this, and I love that there's this there's a there's a direct tinge of sort of sadness and tragedy of of accomplishment and what you what you have to think about that and and it's it starts it starts 15 minutes before the film climaxes at the end, it's 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 starting long before that because had he followed the code, mm-hmm. it's it's all it's he's off to the races he's off to New Zealand. Yeah. And we also and we also know like the the tragedy aspect you just mentioned is sort of compounded by the fact that we know that for Hannah, whatever high he's going to have, which is already dampened by the fact that he has to know on some level uh, as a character, he didn't earn this really. No, Uh, (laughs) no. And and even if he had earned it 100 percent. It's going to dissipate in less than 48 hours. He is going to start to feel hollow and numb, uh, and he is just going to find another high to chase. And it's probably not going to be anywhere near as good as the high that he just got chasing after Macaulay. Like, it's not even going to be methadone. It's going to be smoking (laughs) oregano after just bong-ripping some of the choicest kush you have ever had in your life. Um, And... That's that's sort of why that ending is as perfect as it is. Um, one man actually did adhere to the code. The other man, who was the biggest proponent of the code, did not. And neither of them are getting their happy ending. But it is, according to the way the movie has set everything up, the precise correct ending. It can't end any other way. And it's And it's sort of interesting how vital Clean Up Go Home is to that. Oh, absolutely! I, I, it's it, it's in you said you said it you said it best earlier when we were sort of 
you know, contextualizing this entire film is a lot of people just in flashes. If you, you know, if you're not as familiar with it, or you haven't seen it as many times as most definitely haven't seen it as many times as I have, but as a normal person who likes heat, um, if you've watched it, you know, you th- there are these big signature scenes that you can think of, you know, you, the, the middle heist scene, obviously the, the beginning heist and, and some of the wrap up and, and even, and, and what I'm finding the more and more that I do this podcast, which is such a lovely surprise is that, the more and more people who really like the film sort of love those big centerpieces because of all of the emotional momentum that that are like that build and underpin them and so you've got these emotional foundations to these big action set pieces and these big relieving set pieces um but every time i i watch it i lean into these moments that are that are purely about the relationships and the insights you get to these leading characters, you know, Vincent's iconic ones with Justine, you know, even the, even the aside with Donald Breeden, his sort of tragic, you know, um, exponent of, uh, of sort of an African American man, you know, leaving prison and, and being incentivized to recommit mm-hmm. crime and all these little what you think are just, you know, for, for some people who may have seen the film less are just distractions to the big action and shootout, bang, bang, bang. <laughs> you know, Robert De Niro owns Ashley Judd. I actually, you know, these are the mo- moments where you're like, no, this is, this is actually what makes Heat extremely unique and so hard for people to even come close to imitating. Yeah, like for me personally, um, I know that a lot of the the touchstones for Heat um, are, you know, gun gunplay and yes. and uh, and the sort of weird, loud, disorienting, barking action sequences that yes. man is is really good at. But for me, when I think of Heat, I almost always think of the quiet dialogue moments, and not just you know the the over the shoulder sequence that that is you know legendary at this point uh, in in film discussion circles, but basically any discussion scene like for me i think of heat and i don't even really think of it as an action movie anymore yeah i think of it as a crime drama that happens to have three really good action set pieces in it but they're not even the reason i would try to recommend heat to any anybody no. anymore like, for me heat is just this really crazy uh insight into almost psychotically driven men who yeah. uh <laughs> yes. have who have dedicated almost the entirety of their lives solely to being hyper competent at the one thing they realized they were good at, you know, when they were young uh, and pursuing that to its terminus, which is never going to be pleasant and spending time in that headspace and in that universe. uh, It's rich um, and it's off putting and it's disorienting and it's alluring all at the same time. And, that's a thing that sort of stretches out over man's filmography, but this is that's partially why I feel like this is man's thesis because this is the film where he got every single one of those weird discordant elements to sing perfectly. Like the chords he's playing should not actually ring out as true as they do when you blend them all together. No. But it's like this weird symphony of damaged masculinity that still sounds beautiful <laughs> to your ear. Oh. That's what he is. Well, I want to talk to. I want to keep talking to Bobby all day, all day. So, but what I cannot think of a better way to go out than saying the symphony of damaged masculinity that we've been talking about. Look, 
Bobby, thank you so much for being part of One Heat Minute. I'm, I'm going to pause this there. I'm going to firstly ask you, firstly say thank you. Secondly, you have to come back. There has okay. to be more minutes for you to come back and for us to chat about it at a later time. Thank you so much. Would you, would you come back and, and keep talking to us? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and just bef- let me know. I'm easy. And, I'm, and, I'm pretty easy. And before, <laughs> before I let you go, um, I really, you know, what I discovered in the, it, before we even started recording is that Bobby has a tremendous Al Pacino impression, largely driven by an obsessive watching of The Devil's Advocate. So I'm looking forward to getting you back for a Pacino minute because I want some, <laughs> I want some Devil's Advocate Pacino recorded for, for the people of One yeah. Heat Minute desperately before we go. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna save it. I'm gonna save it now save because it. I could. It sounds like you're almost prompting me, trying to no, draw I it. No, I can't. Out. No, that, I'm teasing. I want to tease them. Even longer. The next episode, they're going to be excited. I guarantee you. Um, But guys, you know, firstly, Bobby, thank you so much for being a part of One Heat Minute. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Um, 80s All Over, uh, which is the podcast that Bobby produces. It is, and and I I want to make sure that I get your your Twitter handle. It's at Bobby Roberts PDX. Is that Mm -hmm. the best place for everyone to find you, Bobby? That is absolutely the best place uh, to find me and the best place to hear me, although you won't actually hear me because I don't talk on 80s all over. Because as you can tell from listening to this episode, um, if you give me half of a sentence, you're getting an essay back. So uh, I don't talk on that show, but I do uh, I do produce it. I do edit it. Uh, I do record it. All the, the old classic trailer drops, I'm the one putting those in. Uh, lately, Drew and Scott have taken to uh, doing almost radio play recreations of how they a film got made uh so i've been obliging them by actually turning them into little radio plays in the middle of the shows um so all that stuff you can hear at 80sallover.com slash podcast uh check that out they they go through every month of the 1980s in order and do capsule reviews of every film that came out that month in wide release and it sounds crazy uh it is crazy it's inspira- <laughs> but, but it's also- inspir- inspirationally crazy because when you go along it's so for a lot of folks you know when people say the 80s you you're you're immediately drawn to the big releases you know your star wars your indiana jones your back to the futures etc but what's amazing is i love the episodes where even the sequences of episodes where there's nothing that is interesting mm. that comes out and you hear movies and you might have seen it on vhs like one time when you were 10 they're my favorites when they when i literally hear about these movies and i'm like how it almost is like a compounded how did this get made over and over, and especially with the radio plays. They're just outstanding. So, yeah, look, a, a, a strong recommend to all those lads. They're all doing great work. So, And also, again, star, if you're a Star Wars fan, which most people listening have, have heard me say, I'm a massive Star Wars fan on an epic scale. Bobby is one of us and the best one of us to follow on Twitter. He's literally he's, he's where you need to go for uh, any Star Wars tweets um, or, or commentary. And you've got a fantastic, is it a, is it, would you call it like a YouTube mini doco on the music right now that you've, uh, you've, you've pulled together? I've, I call it a podcast miniseries because I originally did it solely for a podcast. Um, there's no real video component, but I'm like, I'll, I'll put it on YouTube. So if people want to get to it uh, more quickly, they can. But it's a three-part podcast miniseries called How the Force Works that is entirely about looking at John Williams's score for The Last Jedi, which is, as almost everything else uh, regarding The Last Jedi, sort of contentious. Uh, people don't quite know where they want to land on it or they land on it and then they also immediately fold their arms and like convince me i shouldn't be standing here um and so 
And that's that sort of sums up a lot of the discourse about The Last Jedi, um, or at least it has for the last few months. It's sort of calming down now, finally. But uh, I decided to do uh, three 45-minute episodes based solely on that music and how that music sort of feeds into the storytelling of the film, feeds into the storytelling of the previous films, and sort of uses what it's doing to elicit specific emotions from you uh, in, in accordance to what the scenes themselves are trying to do. And sometimes it works at cross purposes. Sometimes, most of the time, it sort of enriches and makes it uh, a little more powerful, a little more meaningful. And so I just basically step through the soundtrack and also uh, give a little bit of personal history as to how John Williams's music sort of led me into being a, a film fan, uh, a music fan, uh, someone who realized what imagination even was in the first place. Um, so there's a little bit of that at the beginning, and then I just sort of go into uh, why the music for The Last Jedi does what it does and how well it does it. So uh, you can find that on YouTube. Just search How the Force Works, and it should pop up. You'll probably also get a whole lot of music videos of Han Solo yelling at Finn. But <laughs> Guys, what I, will, what I will do first is... I'll make sure that um, on the post of One Heat Minute, if you're listening to this in iTunes or Stitcher or your podcast app, um, you'll you'll probably see the links. I'll make sure that the links to that one is uh, is up in, under Bobby's bio. But look, Bobby, thank you so much uh, for, for being here again. This has been an absolute blast. Guys, thanks for listening to One Heat Minute once again. Um, thank you to Garth Franklin for our web design. Thank you to Paul Davies for our music. But folks, we'll have to catch you next time um, on this uh, what what did you call it, Bobby? I want I want the exact words for you. The symphony of Oh, uh, the symphony of damaged masculinity that still somehow manages to ring true. Perfect. Guys, thanks so much for listening.